Hi there, Glocal Citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, I am so excited to be making the acquaintance of my guest. She is based in Kampala, Uganda, and we've just recently made an acquaintance through a wonderful network of women in development. So I just am always so grateful for my networks. And and so again, I'm still in Brooklyn. I can't wait. I bought my ticket. I'm headed back to Accra very, very soon. So just to give you a little more background, my guest today is Joy Namunonga. She is a Ugandan based in Kampala, Uganda. She has a decade of experience in program management, research, public policy, civic technology, community engagement, and anti-corruption advocacy. She's also an expert on governance and social accountability. Her work has resulted in strengthening Uganda's health system supply chain and enhancing information flow and transparency for Uganda's system of electronic open data records. She's currently an advocacy officer in governance and social accountability at Action Aid International. Wow, Joy, your resume is super impressive. And I want to say welcome to the podcast. Joy, tell us more about where you're from and what inspires you. What's your craft? Wow. Thank you, Flores, for that wonderful introduction. As you've said, my name is Joy Namnoga, based in Kampala, Uganda, the Advocacy Officer Governance and Social Accountability Action A. What really inspires me is to see a government and a country which is free of corruption. I grew up in a family of five girls. My mom was a nursery teacher who didn't have a degree. But I would see her struggling to get us to hospitals. In Uganda, it is said that medicines and healthcare is free. But when you reach health centers, what happens is that we pay under the table. People are forced to bribe their way in in order to access services. So I grew up seeing such things happening at school, especially government-aided schools. Teachers would leave kids in school abscond from duty and go do their businesses. But at the end of the month, they end up being paid. And who mm-hmm. suffers if the common man? So growing up in such circumstances in my household as a woman, as a girl child, going to university, seeing my mom who never had a degree struggling to pay for me school fees, yet people who had the money in their families accessing government scholarships really made me to work hard so that I can secure a future for other young women who are coming up. I want to see that Uganda one day is really practicing what it preaches in its policies. Okay. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you are one of five girl children. Yes. And do you have no brothers, all girls? We are all girls. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That's me too. My dad, with my mother, I have one sister and my father has been married before and after my mother. So there are five of us as well. So they say sometimes men don't make girls, I mean, make boys. So he has five. I'm one of five as well. So that's interesting. Wow. And which number are you in birth order? I'm the firstborn. I'm the firstborn. And you know what happens in Africa and being a firstborn? 
you automatically yeah. become a deputy mom or a deputy parent. And exactly. the way you succeed is going to open up doors for the people following you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it looks like you've been doing a really good job of that for your siblings. So kudos to you. Thank you for that. Yeah. So tell us more about, so you talked a little bit about growing up and what you saw. And so when you decided, you know, what you were going to pursue in university, tell us more about that path, like getting to university. And, you know, you mentioned there are people who have more resources than you might have had. How did you forge that, that path? Okay, getting to university was not a straight route for me as a girl who who is a first-generation college, can I say, student. My parents never attended university education. So that Mm -hmm. meant I had to rely on peers and acquaintances in the community to even help me apply at university. Well, in high school, most kids knew their street path that, okay, after high school, I'm going to this kind of university. For my mom, she had to ask community members to support me even to fill in the university forms. Some were helpful, some weren't. I remember talking to one of my deputy head teachers and I told him, you know what, I want to be a lawyer. He told me that, oh, why don't you be a teacher? When I told him about my passion, he called my mom trying to convince her for me to change my direction because it wasn't common. For a girl like me who not who could not even afford high school fees to be able to afford a university education. But I remember my mom telling me that Joy Sky is just a beginning. Keep pursuing what you can so that you can achieve your goals. Mm-hmm. So I applied to Macquarie University. It's one of the best universities in Africa. But Indeed. yeah. <laughs> I was so excited after three months to see my name in the newspaper amongst the people who had been taken on in private scholarships came. Much as I had got that golden opportunity, my parents could not afford paying Macquarie University fees, yet it's one of the cheapest. It takes the brightest, but it's kind of cheap, but still my mom could not afford that education. So mm-hmm. my mom who was a nursery <laughs> volunteer teacher started making bricks so that her daughter can attend university education. I got a sales job where I would hold men's shirts door to door so that I can be able to complement my lifestyle. And my mm-hmm. grandmom also started doing certain things, baking. So it was mainly a collection of funds for Joy to complete her university degree in Macquarie. When I reached wow. Macquarie University, um, Remember, uh, you need to choose course units which are speaking directly to where you want to go. Now, that was one of my biggest challenges. I didn't know who to ask. I didn't have a role model like my dad to help me to choose which certain course units. So whenever I would be with my peers, I would choose classes according to the size. So if I see that this course unit has 100 kids, I would think that it will be the best for me. So halfway through the time, I would realize, oh, oh, you've made a mistake, Joy. You have to swim. (laughs) My first year was really crazy and crazy. I had to switch course units because I was really searching for something which would fulfill me as a person. But at the end of the day, I graduated from a carry the first class degree. In my year, I was the only girl 
got that first class degree. Um, okay. in and that, what, what, what was the degree in? Pardon? It was a degree in social sciences, and I was majoring in law, and I was minoring in political science and public administration. Yeah. So when I got that degree, when they read out my name, because of the excitement, I was sitting next to my mom. I could see her tears. I could understand her joy. But one thing I remember so vividly, she repeated the same statement that joy, sky is just the beginning. It's not the limit for you. So basically, that is my university journey. Okay. And I don't agree with the woman I am today. Yeah. So you make a great point because I think a lot of first generation, particularly in Africa, young people, they don't have anyone that's helping them and assisting them to make those decisions and can really be a shepherd in the process. So it's trial and error. So that makes a lot of sense. So for your sisters now, how have you been able to to assist them? Have they all gone on to university? What are they doing now? And now that is a very interesting part of it. As soon as I finished university, two years after my mom passed on with cancer, when she passed on with cancer, I was 21. I was a single mom then. My next sister was just joining Macquarie University. So the difference between me and her is that she had Joy who knew the system. I knew how she would fill in the forms. When she told mm-hmm. me, Joy, I want to do social administration and law, I knew which costume is specifically to fill and the waiting. But we had another big challenge. Like what I went through, she faced the same because our mom is gone. Joy had just right. started uh, an internship program with the Johns Hopkins Center for Communications Programs in Kampala. And Mm -hmm. I was one of their first, first volunteers in the country. So Mm -hmm. everything I would get, I would put it on my sister because I never wanted her to go through what I had gone through. I would skip meals, I would skip lunch, and my colleagues would wonder why I would do that. But I would make sure, my sister is called Peace. I would make sure that Peace got that best education and she graduated from Macquarie University. Our third also graduated from Macquarie University as well. So Peace mm-hmm. and I joined forces to make sure that the rest of them are in school. Our youngest is 15, but mm-hmm. for her, she's enjoying certain privileges. We are guiding her towards what she wants to become. That's what you want to be. So she told me she wanted to be a policy analyst. So it's not so common in Uganda. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> since I'm grounded in policy work, I'm helping her to reach that direction. I take her to my meetings when I'm engaging with government and civil society to understand what it entails to be the woman she wants to be. It has not been easy, but when I look about educating the girl child, looking at my example, it has ripple effect. If my mom and dad had listened to the community to marry me off when I finish high school, I wouldn't be helping my siblings. And mm-hmm. dad, I remember how the community used to talk about him and having only girl children. You know, in Africa, it leads to family extinction. Our cultures are really mm-hmm. weird. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right now, one of the most proud people in the community, when we go to visit dad, there is a way he speaks up. Those are my daughters. He speaks proudly as compared to people who used to scorn him. Some of his his peers, kids have not finished school, they are home, and some have even engaged in, in crimes. 
ending up in prison. And as the girls they used to laugh at come up to help with legal aid and pro bono support. Right. So the most important point I want to make that educating a girl child in Africa has report effects, which can help the community to grow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. That's so true. So true. So I want to ask you, I have this question. It's called why the where? So we know mm-hmm. you're from and you've, you've been there, but let's take joy, the, the adult professional. So yeah. where, how did you come to be living and working and playing where you are now? So you've done university. Now you're joy, the professional. How did you come to be living and working and playing where you live? Okay, so after university, job jobs in Africa are a bit hard. And for Uganda, I won't hide it. The nepotism mm-hmm. comes in, the person you know. In case your dad's friends are educated, your mom's friends are educated, you have better chances of getting a job as compared to a bright kid. Most bright right. kids end up on streets. I was one of the lucky ones after school. In fact, before graduating, when I was at Makere, I joined Standard Chartered Bank. <laughs> I just went and I did that aptitude. Yes, because I wanted to help out my sisters. I really wanted things for them to be different. So mm-hmm. I went and I did an aptitude. I passed it so high. But they had a glitch that I was a teenager. I was 18. So mm-hmm. they were challenged on whether to give an 18-year-old this job, despite of the fact that she had passed the aptitude. The person who gave me the job in that bank, who made the final decision was the country director of the bank. I was just called in and he looked at my results. I was like, I'm so impressed by your results. Even if you're young, go work hard. That was my beginning journey. I started from the prestigious mm-hmm. bank. I was lucky. However, when I reached the banking system, I realized that sometimes the things we think are really glittering are not gold. I felt I was misplaced. I felt I was bored. I'm an advocate, just naturally. So I worked for Standard Chartered Bank eight months. And after graduating, guess what I did? From a bank, I went to vent, to bake, to distribute fruits in hostels. Nobody would understand why I would leave Standard Chartered to go in my room and I start distributing things. But that was not my passion. So mm-hmm. I woke up a friend came and told me about USAID and Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, Uganda. They were taking on interns fresh from school, training them so that they can suit the job world. And they would place the interns for a year in an organization they would choose so that they can get that experience. And after a year, you graduate home. So when she told me about the program, I told her, oh, I'm interested. But... The bad news on that day was that it, the, pro, the intake for that year had passed. It was 2009. Yeah, she told me the 2009 intake was done and I have to apply in the following year. I was like, don't worry, just give me the directions to the place. When she gave me the directions to the place, <laughs> I got my CV. <laughs> I got my testimonial because it was around November 2009 and I was supposed to graduate in January 2010. So I went religiously to Bogolovi, got a bicycle, never had money for a taxi. I got mm-hmm. a bicycle 
I wrote it after the Health Communication Partnership, which was hosting Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. The security guard asked me that, oh, Joy, do you have an appointment? I said, yes. I was just responding, yes, I have an appointment. So luckily, you know, things happen miraculously. When um, I reached the reception were two ladies and she was, the receptionist told me, oh, have you all come to see Amos? I remember the man was called Amos. We all say if yes, but I do <laughs> not know who Amos was. But we went with a lady I was seated with and when we reached Amos's office, Luckily, it's Amos who was getting the CVs and working on the program. He's one of the biggest consultants in Uganda on health communication is Amos Dixoka. So he uh-huh. was like, okay, before you come, but the, the deadline was last week. The interviews are done. Your colleagues have been placed. But I think you should go back home, bring your CV, and we'll see what happens. I was like, oh, I've moved with my CV. <laughs> but the person who had an appointment hadn't moved with a CV. Mm-hmm. So I put out my CV and I told him that, you know what, Amos, I know the deadline has passed, but I'm ready and really willing to work in any place you post me for free. He looked at my CV and he told me, Joy, your CV even doesn't look for someone who is completing in January. It's really good. I went back home with my bike. It took me like two hours to ride from Bukolovi up to... I was still living in Makere. And uh-huh. the next day I received a call and it was Amos and he was telling me to start working on Amandi. That wow. was my launch to work in civic society. Okay. Monday, I was first put on a project for young, empowered, and healthy. It's a very common project in Africa by USA, where it's about yeah, empowering the youth. It's called young. young, young, empowered and healthy. Yeah, young and Okay. Yeah, yeah. It is a very common Mercedes project where they use, they use cartoons. They use anything to do with behavior change, communication in order to curb HIV/AIDS. Here mm-hmm. I am. I want to work in communities and change the status quo. Put in a boardroom to write scripts for young, empowered and healthy and also skits. I sat with these brains in the boardroom. People were coming from US, they're coming from Kenya to, oh, let Amon do this. The storyline should take us to this direction. I was like, am I in the right place? This is not what I'm supposed to do. I want to do ABC. So when it was time for break, I went to Amos and I openly told him that Amos, I really love this opportunity, but I feel I want to work with communities, mobilizing communities, empowering communities, and if possible, to give support. He was shocked. <laughs> okay, Joy, you're so confident, but it's good to know what you love. When you know what you love, you will never quit. So when I got a few placements from still USID, President's Maria Initiative, it was Laura Bush's initiative. I okay. got an opportunity to be the first woman volunteer for that project. I was placed in West Nile, Uganda. That is like eight hours on a bus from Kampala. 
So everybody tried to stop me from going because I never think I was in Nile. It was far from home. The network and everything was different culture, different people, much as it was Uganda. But I was ready to go because I felt that's what I really love doing. So I left young, empowered and healthy. And I went for the USAD PMI in the West Nile. I was there for a year and it was really, really awesome. That's where I met very good friends. I worked with the district health team. We were designing malaria focal messages to support communities there. And right now when I see that there is a change in Northern Uganda as regards to children under five surviving malaria and pregnant women, I just remember the efforts we put in. So to cut the long story short, after USAID PMI, I just realized that in order to work in communities and to change the existing status quo, you need to have that local to national linkage of addressing issues. And when I was in USAID PMI, it was mainly for that region. It was not giving me that national linkage to talk to the ministries, to talk to the departments and agencies as what is happening in the communities and how to cause systemic change. So I applied in the Anti-Corruption Coalition Uganda, and that is another story. I left USAID PMI. I came back to Kampala. I had plans of first applying to Raising Voices. It's a, another renowned organization funded by USAID and people in the United States. But when I was taking my CV there, the security guard refused me to drop it. So as I was sloping down in anguish and disappointment, that's when I saw the signpost of Anti-Corruption Coalition Uganda. I just went to the office. I told them about my experience and what I want to do and my passion. The receptionist and administrator who are there told me, we've never taken on volunteers before, but what we can do, we can give you a three-month internship my mom told me that if that's what you really want, go for it. But in their letter, they clearly told me that we do not have any financial support we are going to give to you. I was like, okay, as long as I'm doing what I love. So I applied and January 4th, 2011, I became the advocacy intern for Anti-Corruption Coalition Uganda. But a month before even finishing my internship, the executive director got interested in how I was working, assisting the board, helping them to design governance manuals. I was the first volunteer in Anti-Corruption Coalition Uganda. In fact, she told me, you're going to be our first volunteer since 2009 when the organization started. So there I was, I'm working as a volunteer, but I was not having a salary because it wasn't in their system. But I was happy that I was influencing government. I was going in communities, following up corruption cases, investigating, taking them to the judiciary for action, and even presenting papers on them so that change can be caused. My work led our executive director to convince the donor to pay me a stipend, and the donor gave me a stipend without objection. Now, that was after two years working without a penny. <laughs> so, yeah. So one time the board came up, you know, when a project is, whenever the project was ending in Anti-Corruption Coalition Uganda, the board always had to do an evaluation to see which staff should remain or which new positions they would be able to create. 
So I went and I presented to the board what I'd done in the two years as an advocacy volunteer and right now as an advocacy assistant. And there was an advocacy manager as well in the institution. But three of the board members say that Joy is kind of doing more work than the advocacy manager. Why is the advocacy manager not defending whatever he's doing apart from uh-huh. giving us his Yeah. Now, these are three men defending a woman. You know, that is another thing we can talk about. It's so common that glass ceiling in institutions most times is not by the men, but it's by people who look like us and who are women. Sometimes due to fear of competition and maybe selfish reasons at heart, but there are three gentlemen. In fact, right now we have very big posts in the country who really stood by their ground and convinced the executive director And that's how I became the advocacy officer without an interview. It really brought some havoc in the institution because we were two women in the institution. It was so male-centered. And of course, when you look at the legal fraternity and governance, it's mainly filled with a man. Very few women are involved in governance and we think it's the space for the men. I really found challenges. The treatment I was given by the women I was working with Whoever would come on board, mm. I felt like I was someone who had a godfather in the institution. In fact, it brought an investigation by some of the new board members who thought I was related to the executive director. And after looking at my profile, they were convinced that I was not in any way related to my mm-hmm. executive mm-hmm. director. So it wasn't <laughs> right, but it wasn't yeah, the nepotism that is rampant yeah. in part of the question yeah. that yeah. is there. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So my journey, yeah, my journey in anti-corruption was interesting. I kind of followed, um, I followed like 120 cases to completion. They were really completed and people mm-hmm. got justice and I left others to be taken on. Then I started regional anti-corruption coalitions because anti-corruption coalition was based in Kampala, but there are some hard to reach areas where everybody would fear to start small community-based organizations to challenge corruption. And those are the places Mm -hmm. in Uganda where funds would be stolen, like the Karamoja region. The government has Mm -hmm. really invested in a hedge of funds in those areas. But even when you go there today, they do not have good roads. The health centers are deserted no teachers. And I was like, okay, I think this is the best spot for me to invest. So I initiated the, one of the corruption coalitions called the Karamoja Anti-Corruption Coalitions. And I'm happy it is still going on up today and being funded by big donors. So the people in Karamoja, whatever they knew was about cattle keeping. They didn't care about resources. So I started mainstreaming governance and social accountability into livestock farming. So I would go to Mm -hmm. livestock agencies and I informed them why it was very important for them to be involved in governance processes, to be involved in the budgeting, to know their policies. Karamoja has very many policies, but even NGOs which are working in Karamoja did not know that they even had development plans. So my coming in on board in Karamoja was bittersweet. To some, it was welcomed, especially by the communities. In fact, community members were calling me the member of parliament of Karamoja jokingly because whenever mm-hmm. I'm coming, they will know something is going to be done. 
I made sure I made the government agencies to establish offices in Kamoja region. We have now the Inspectorate of Government having an office. The State House also has an office for monitoring medicines. But to some leaders who are benefiting from the practice, it was a threat. They started stopping my meetings. Sometimes whenever they would hear I was coming, they would make sure they divert a community to have maybe a regional event, a cultural event, so that the community members would not participate in my activities. At the end of the day, I had to now use the cultural approach, talking to cultural leaders, talking to the women, talking to mm -hmm. the religious leaders. So I made sure that the religious leaders come up with what we call the religious communique of tackling corruption, whereby now the religious leaders would speak about corruption right. somewhere. Right. Yes. Appealing to the, yeah. the basic moral yeah. ethic people. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah. What you described in terms of what the ramifications of the corruption were. So you said it's that they're not getting roads. It's that they're not getting health. It's that they're not yeah. getting access to the kind of information that would allow them to improvements in their lives. So this mm -hmm. scaffold that you created in reaching people, were you often by yourself? How did you bring people along that can result in sustaining the work that you were doing on the corruption level and even just pointing out and informing the people, like what tools did you and do you use to be sure that, because these are rural places, these are probably places where people don't have a lot of education. How, how yeah. did you actually go into the mechanics of the work? Okay. Uh, one of the things I used was to establish a community-based monitoring and evaluation system. Here we okay. I would go to communities and I would tell them about the program and tell them to come in as volunteers. Volunteers would come and be trained like for a week on corruption, how to monitor corruption. And I also gave mm -hmm. them simple, basic monitoring tools. I would divide them according to sectors. I would choose like in every sub-county, five of my volunteers would monitor health and five would monitor education. So I would give them specific mm -hmm. tools to be filled because for them, they never had information about the standards and the actual. So I would give them uh, mm -hmm. like a form, like in a sub-county, there are supposed to be four health centers. For them, their work was to fill in how many they have. In a health center, there are supposed to be 19 doctors. How many do they have on ground? So I'll get that information tabulated and do what we call a community parliament. So in a community mm -hmm. parliament, I'll bring communities together with the district officials and office bearers. So I'll make sure that it's one of the community volunteers who reads the report, but not me, for ownership. So they would read the report in their local language, and the duty bearers would be tasked to respond to some of the issues. And in case the duty bearers in the meeting would, would of course, accept that such issues cannot be handled to their level, I will take such issues at the national level. Now, at the national level, I, I establish what we call the health and education sector anti-corruption working groups. So those issues would be thematically categorized so that they would be presented before the ministries of health, ministers of education, for them to include them either in their policies or in their budgeting systems, and I'll follow them up to conclusion. Let me give an example of one of the issues which came from the community in Karamoja, is where they throw a lot of money into the education sector, having very good infrastructures in schools, but 
most of their teachers were absconding from duty to drive what we call border borders. Border borders are like hired motorcycles. Some of them would get drunk. So kids would go to school and do nothing and go back home. So what I did when we presented that issue to the community parliament through our monitors, the district informed that we do not hire. It's the Ministry of Education in Kampala which hires. I went and I presented that issue before the Ministry of Education and Sports. Of course, the first adamant about not knowing what was happening, but of course they know because they pour money there. I really mm-hmm. followed it up. I lobbied even schedulely. I had to include in legislators in parliament to bring that issue. Mm-hmm. I did policy briefs. And until the Ministry of Education started paying teachers according to work hours. I was so mm-hmm. happy. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's when that Secondly, another thing I did with the communities in Kramoja, most of the laws in Uganda are in English, but not everybody mm-hmm. in Uganda is educated. So now I right. had to partner with clan heads. I'm not a Karamojong, I'm a girl born in the central. So right know the language so well. I had the legal technicality, they had the language. How would we bring our efforts together? The third thing we translated was the Anti-Corruption Act. So we translated it into their local language and we simplified it in a user-friendly format. Up to now, the law is still there and people are still using it. So whenever even community monitors were empowering communities, whenever religious leaders were speaking about corruption, they will speak about it not as an elite Kampala thing. Right now, the law is in their language and it can be easily understood by the common man. The most important thing um, I also did is that most of the people in Karamoja were not involved in the budgeting processes. They did not know how much they are even receiving from the Ministry of Finance. I had to remind them that it was their right to get involved in the budgeting processes. So I empowered them to come up with what we call Mm -hmm. budget committees from the community up to the district level. I knew government had those structures, but sometimes they take advantage of the communities not being able to know in order to write whatever amount of money they want and need, and the money is passed. Mm -hmm. So this time around, that was 2013, the communities really got involved in the budgeting processes right from the village to the parish. And I had to work with the donor. One of the donors was called Dan Church Aid to make sure that they transport some of the community members to get involved in the district budget conferences. Now, that's where the final decisions on what and how much is going to be allocated is made. The district didn't first welcome the idea, but just because the donor was funding both the district and my community monitors, they were allowed to participate. And I was happy to, for the monitors to know how much was going on their road and which period was the specific mm-hmm. road supposed to be completed. So when community knows mm-hmm. site-specific information, they are able to monitor and also whistleblow so that the anti-graft agencies come up and follow up the cases. So that's how I was able to involve the community into fighting graft. Wow, that's great. That's going to do it for this episode of Global Citizens. Thanks for joining me for part one of my conversation with Joy Namununga. 
Be sure to join us next week when we talk more in depth about the technical aspects of being an advocacy officer and working on anti-corruption in Uganda. As always, you can catch us at www.glocalcitizenspod.com on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get podcasts, you can find us. So please do join in, comment, share, subscribe, and come back next week. As always, bye for now. Bye.